brethren. Certainly is a privilege to be here with you on a very beautiful Sabbath day in Charlotte. It's also kind of nice to come back to the colonies. (laughs) It really is strange after growing up in the United States and then living overseas for uh, almost four years now. But uh, it's exciting, it's sobering to watch and see what's happening, especially uh, the decline and the decay of what we would refer to here as a mother country. Things are literally coming apart spiritually over there, physically, in many ways. But it is nice to get back here. I think one of the the biggest shocks to my system is that over there I live about 35 miles north of London in kind of a rural area. There's a lot of uh, agricultural around, but in driving the roads, the, right, the roads are barely wide enough for two cars. Very scenic driving around. And then you drive on these four-lane, tree-lined boulevards here, and it's like you've landed on a different planet. <laughs> <laughs> but it is sobering, especially the affluence that is here. Now, we take it for granted, I think. But as Mr. Tyler was mentioning, the trips that he's had through Southeast Asia, uh, part of my responsibilities have been to make trips to East Africa, and uh, it's just it's sobering to see the incredible difference. I just turned in an article on poverty and some of the statistics that I came across. I think the statistic is something like 50% of the human beings on this earth, about 3 billion out of the 6 billion people, live on about $2 a day or less. Half of the human race lives on $2 a day or less. And when you think about what that means in terms of the loss of services, the things that you have to live by, and yet you know, we get upset of, well, if I don't have you know, six or seven bedrooms, I'm exaggerating, but you know, most people eke out with what is the equivalent of a you know, straw hut and a shed and things like that. It's just incredible, the inequities in this world and in this system. But it is exciting to come back to be at headquarters. We had some very positive meetings, as Dr. Meredith mentioned. I was just thinking I came into the church about 1965, so it's almost 40 years. And I look in the mirror, and I'm beginning to believe it. Mr. Tyler was mentioning his sons were talking about new uses for black shoe polish. (laughs) Bruce at least has hair to put it on. (laughs) I think I was visiting with my grandson on the last trip, he says, Grandpa, you're bald on the back of your head. <laughs> His mother said, <laughs> But he was just acknowledging a fact. You know, fortunately for you, the, the lights will shine back that way off of my head and not forward. But it is interesting. It's been fun. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law have moved here to the Charlotte area. will be here for a number of months in training. But in staying with them, I have uh, come to a much deeper appreciation of the Big Bang Theory. Uh, For me, it begins every morning with them at 6.30. (laughs) When two little blonde heads stick their head, or two little blonde kids stick their head in the door, Grandpa, are you awake? And I almost don't want to admit that I am. And I said, yes. And all of a sudden, the light comes on and two... Little kids come bounding up in the bed. Look how this bounces. <laughs> and can you read us a story? So it's 6.30 in the morning. So um, <clears throat> Dr. Meredith, there's one reason I was a little bit sleepy in some of the meetings. This was part of the reason. <laughs> but it is exciting to, to be with family members. It's exciting coming back here. Uh, as Dr. Meredith mentioned, things in the U.K. have uh, gotten rather interesting lately with going on uh, television over there is talking with Wayne Powell just before services. And we've been on the television station that covers the U.K., parts of Europe, and who knows where else over there. We've had about 450 responses or more in the last month. So that he said it's tracking very good. Uh, our responses are about $20 a response. He said that's also very good. So that is encouraging. I've noticed within the last month or two <clears throat> An increase in the number of people just responding over the Internet. We get phone calls asking for uh, more information. They're starting to ask for visits. 
We had put an ad in uh, one of the sources we use over there for the booklet, The Real God, and I talked to Mr. Story, and I said, well, let's just try it and see what happens. And we had over 3,500 responses for a booklet on The Real God, which you think is very basic. But uh, there is a hunger, I believe, in that part of the world. Uh, one of the, the uh, fact sheets I gave out uh, this past week indicated, and this was a European study, that 70% of the people in Europe believe in a God. Now, that may not be the God that we're talking about, but at least 70% of the people believe in God. But church attendance in Europe runs maybe 10%, maybe 15% of the population. And in Paris, sorry, Mr. Pardin, but less than 10% attend church in France. But they are rediscovering the Bible in France. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the years ahead. We have answers to questions that people are asking. What is the purpose of human life? Where are things going? What is happening in the world? And we have answers to those questions. Just very briefly, uh, some of you probably have been following the ongoing saga in East Africa that's been on the Internet. We had a disruption down there in March. Um, we have a, um, uh, an American apostle who came into that area uh, to share his new truth, and our minister in that area went with him. And according to his figures on the Internet, uh, we lost almost all of our people. Uh, only about uh, maybe 18 people attend with us. Uh, if you add about 100 to that, you'll be in the right ballpark. But uh, using figures that are supplied by the people in Africa, it appears the majority of the people are going to stay with us. I will not repeat some of the personal assessments that they made uh, uh, down there. But they saw through what was happening. Virtually all of the leaders, I think with the exception of one, saw what was happening, recognized what was happening, said we are not moving we were not consulted <laughs> about moving. So it's been very encouraging to see uh, what has happened down in that area. I told the people there, I said, you'll learn through this experience. You will learn and you will come through this much more stable and much more solid and much more convicted. What I would like to talk about this afternoon in the sermon, <clears throat> I would like to address the subject of prophecy, uh, events that are going to happen in the future, but I want to come at it in a slightly different uh, direction or come at it from a slightly different direction than we have uh, generally approached it. Dr. Meredith referred to Matthew 24 where Christ was asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And we generally tend to focus on wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and disease epidemics and things like that. Jesus Christ also mentioned other things or inspired other prophecies for the future. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 17. Talk about ten kings or ten leaders or ten nations that will give their power to a beast. And this appears to be happening in Europe today. The buzzword over there is not so much giving your power, but surrendering your sovereignty. Surrendering your sovereignty. Some people think that nationalism is dead, but uh, the Germans and the French and other people there don't necessarily believe that. Their leaders may think nationalism is dead. But many of the common people are very much, they want to be Germans, they want to be French. They, they're not quite sure what being Europeans means. And I think the studies I have seen, 30, 35, 40, 45, 55% of the common people would just as soon let Brussels be Brussels and stay out of their business. I was talking with a hotel manager down in Salzburg in Austria. I said, what are your thoughts on the European Union? He says, Brussels is a long way away. In other words, they can stay up there. You know, we'd like to do our own thing down here. The European project is a project of the intellectual elite, not the common people. And this may break up at some point in time. It's going to be interesting to watch and see. Daniel 2 talks about this, this uh, union at the end of the age. It's a mixture of iron and clay, which is a very apt description of what's happening in Europe. 
the elite want to put it together. The common people would just as soon say, you know, keep it. Uh, we want to be ourselves. It is a union of iron and clay. It's going to be very interesting to watch and see with this French referendum is coming up on May 29th, a week from tomorrow, that uh, the French and the Germans have been the what have been called the, the engine of Europe. Uh, the French view this, the, the Germans are the economic engine, and the French are riding the horse. See, they're the ones that are guiding it. And this is how they view it over there. Uh, <clears throat> if you ask a German about that, they probably have a different perspective. Uh, they don't necessarily appreciate being viewed as the horse. I think they view themselves as the horse and the rider. It's going to be interesting to watch to see what happens. I have not seen the latest reports, but uh, the last things I saw, about 54%, 55% of the French uh, are ready to vote no on this Constitution. And what happens is if the Constitution, the European Constitution, is not ratified by everybody in the Union, then they've, they've got to do something. They've got to start over. They keep talking about a core that will move out ahead and leave the others behind. Uh, there are 25 nations now in the European Union. Uh, if a core moves out ahead, all of a sudden you're back into the vicinity of 10 nations or 10 leaders. Uh, if the French turn this thing down, it's really going to throw a monkey wrench into the system. Uh, they have put the British vote on the referendum at the end of the line to bring psychological pressure on the Brits. In other words, if everybody else passes the referendum and the Brits have the last vote, psychologically they're going to feel like, well, we'll be left out if we don't vote for it. So they're put there for a reason. I think many people in Britain are hoping that the French will vote no or the Dutch, which comes two days later uh, after the French vote, that they will vote no. And if they don't vote no, they hope the Danes will or the Czechs will uh, or the Poles will. So there's a lot of people hoping this is not going to pass. And if it doesn't pass, then we could have a reshuffling of everything in Europe, which would create a very different situation. Also, with the uh, German pope being elected, this is the first German pope in a 1,000 years. Uh, Mr. Kohl, who was the former head of the German government, had made statements that the 21st century will be the German century. And I believe there are Germans who still believe that and think that. A close friend who was working in France for a number of years, he was at a cocktail party apparently in Paris, and he said uh, the wife of a German diplomat was asked, uh, well, the French kind of like to run things, don't they? And her response was she was a German. We are letting them think that <laughs> for another four or five years. Now, this was a couple years ago. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, if we have a German pope and if they come up with a president of Europe and a prime minister of Europe. Uh, Joschka Fischer, probably one of the most popular politicians in Germany, has let it be known he would like to be, he would volunteer to be the prime minister of Europe. So if you have a German prime minister, the person who has been appointed to head the, the European army, is a German, and a German pope. I mean, you're back into a scenario from the Middle Ages. Uh, the Germans may not want to miss this opportunity. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the next several years. We have talked about Matthew 24, where Christ said to watch for a configuration of world events that comes together, of famines, earthquakes, disease epidemics, Wars, rumors of wars. These are world events. But Jesus also talked about some other things in Matthew 24 that I would like to focus on today. Jesus talked about challenges that would face his church, challenges that would face Christians as we approach the end of the age. And in the sermon this afternoon, I would like to address the subject of challenges facing the church of God, challenges facing Christians as we approach the end of the age. Because this is another dimension of the drama. World events are developing. 
But Christ also talked about challenges that we would face as individual Christians, challenges his church would face as we approach the end of the age. And these are things that are going to impact us, things that are impacting us right now. Let's go to Matthew 24. Keeping in mind, Jesus was asked, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How are we going to know? He talked about these world events, but he also talked about some other things that are going to impact us very directly in the church of God. In verse 4, Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you. Now he's talking to his disciples. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name. I'm a Christian. I'm a minister of God. I'm a man of God. I'm a Christian. I'm part of the church. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. I am a Christian. I'm a minister of God and will deceive many. Very pointed, very plain. And then he talks about wars and rumors of wars. But the very first things he mentions is be careful you are not deceived. The first point I want to talk about this afternoon is one of the challenges. The first challenge that that Christ mentioned was we've got to be able to recognize and avoid deceivers and deception. We've got to be able to recognize deceivers and deception. Down in verse 11, he says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And down in verse 24, the same thing. Mr. Armstrong used to mention, God repeats in the Bible things that are important. He repeats these things. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And I think there's been some discussion over the years, well, you know, is it possible for the elect to be deceived, kind of based on how you read this verse? And some people feel, oh, it's not possible that we can be deceived because we're the elect. But there are several ways of reading this verse that they are going to be so convincing that they may even deceive the very elect if they're not alert and if they're not watching. You know, we have seen this happen in the last 10 years. The people that you sat beside in church, you thought were solidly with the church, and they go drifting off. Oh, isn't going to heaven wonderful? Isn't it great that we don't have to keep the Sabbath? Isn't it wonderful that we can get rid of these dietary laws? I've always wanted to eat these other things. It's amazing what has happened. But Jesus warned three times in this chapter, be careful, don't be deceived. Let's look quickly at, uh, go back to Revelation chapter 6, where John is talking about these symbolic four horsemen. And the very first of the horsemen, is on a white horse. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. It says, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went forth, or went out, conquering and to conquer. Now, this is the same thing that Christ was talking about in Matthew 24, of false prophets, false teachers. In my experience over the years of hearing this verse explained, it's kind of brushed off kind of easily. Well, you know, there's always been false prophets. They've been here for a century, so this is no big deal. You know, there would be false prophets. But, you know, a very interesting thing has taken place in the last 10 to 15 to 20 years that we look around and we get kind of appalled and concerned about the, the lack of religion and how people are not attending church as much and It looks like religion is going down the tubes. And yet people that study religion on a global basis have noticed within the last 20 years a resurgence of religion, a resurgence of religion. It's taking place on a worldwide scale. In the 1960s, 
think a book came out talking about, uh, you know, is God dead, written by a Harvard theologian. And the theory was through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, secularism is going to triumph, religion is going to disappear, you know, it, it holds people back, modernism is going to take over. And yet what they have seen in the last 20 years has been a resurgence of, re of religion. You know, we have got a president in America who's been elected as an evangelical Protestant, very openly religious person. Muslim religion is coming back. I'm going to read just a, a short section here out of uh, this book, The Clash of Civilizations, by Samuel Huntington, who is a, a renowned scholar on international relations, and he's on the staff at Harvard University. Uh, he makes the statement... Uh, and this book was written, I think, about 1996. He says, A universal religion is only slightly more likely to emerge than is a universal language. But he mentions the 20th century, the late 20th century, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, has seen a global resurgence of religions around the world. So this is what they're noticing. There's been a resurgence of religion. This was supposed to die off. People weren't supposed to be religious anymore. Picked up a book uh, in the bookstore coming over by Karen Armstrong entitled The Battle for God. And she's describing this same phenomena about this resurgence of religion that's taking place around the world. She says, one of the most startling developments of the late 20th century has been the emergence within every major religious tradition of a militant piety, popularly known as fundamentalism. Uh, she says, this religious resurgence has taken many observers by surprise because the observers were secular <laughs> intellectuals that had bought into this idea religion is dead and they can't understand why is this happening. People should be smarter than this. Religion is not dying. I came across another book entitled The Revenge of God. In other words, talking about the resurgence of religion in the last 10 or 15 years. When you, you consider this, this resurgence of religion, when everybody thought it was dead, and yet John is talking about here in Revelation, this uh, person riding on a white horse going forth to conquer or going forth conquering and to conquer. He's talking about a militant Christianity. I saw a news report about the uh, Pope that has just been re-elected, re or elected. And it said that, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> he may represent a new militant form of Christianity. In other words, we've got to get back to the traditions of the church. Here's a guy who's been the head of the Congregation of Faith and Doctrine, the former Inquisition Department, who's now the new pope. And they mentioned that you know he could be very firm and so on, but he's making overtures at least right now of let's get everybody together, a big ecumenical effort. And what I see happening in Britain, the Anglican Church appears to be about ready to go under over there. The current Archbishop of Canterbury is from the Anglo-Catholic wing of the Anglican Church. And he was one of the first uh, religious leaders to run off to Rome to welcome the new pope. And he may wind up leading the English church back towards the Catholic Church. And people who are fed up with the direction of morals in the UK may feel this is our hope is to slide back into the Catholic Church where there is a firm person in charge and they will hold on to true values. It'll be interesting to watch, but this militant form of Christianity is pictured here in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. So a militant religion may emerge in the coming years. But what I want to focus on here for just a minute is Jesus warned be alert. Don't be deceived. Don't let anyone deceive you. You know, we have talked for years about their 600 or more Protestant denominations, and they all have their own version of Christianity. And many of us were called out of that. 
But now we have over 300 groups that have spun off from the Church of God. So if a person is looking for the truth, they've got to filter through some thousands of organizations to find the truth. It's very easy to be deceived today with people twisting the scriptures. You know, how do you recognize a deceiver? Well, a lot of people are very sincere. But Mr. Armstrong used to repeat periodically, you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong and sincerely deceived. So sincerity is not a measure of the truth. You know, people who are deceiving other people will twist the truth. I was reading my grandson's little story about Adam and Eve and how the serpent <laughs> said, well, you know, you can't really trust God on everything. You know, they, look at those apples. They're, they're good. They look good. They taste good. But it's the consequence of what happens when we go down that road. Scriptures will be twisted. People will give their own personal twists to Scriptures. Well, the church really doesn't understand this scripture, but I do. God has given me an insight, and if the church just comes to understand what I understand, then God will really bless us. Now, these ideas are floating around today. I don't know how many emails I've gotten. Said, well, you need to read this latest post by somebody on the Internet. It, I, I really agree with this. This, this is really great. And then I said, why don't we watch and see what happens? And a couple of weeks later, the person is disfellowshipped. Or you hear that they've started their own church. And this is what is happening today. People are being deceived. And yet I think if you would ask anybody, well, do you think you might be deceived? Oh, no, not me. I couldn't be deceived. I've been in church 30, 40 years. But it's happening every day. Jesus said, Watch. Be alert. Don't be deceived. And he said this repeatedly. So one of the major challenges that we will face as we approach the end of the age is deceivers becoming very active, many of them, and deception. How do we avoid deception? Very quickly. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, Prove all things. Examine everything and hold on to those things that prove to be right and true. Prove it. Remember a friend of mine was asked some years ago, he said, how could you preach one thing and then turn around and preach something totally different? He says, well, I, well he was asked, how can you preach something that you once proved was true and then turn around and preach something else. He says, I, I, I never really proved it. I never really proved it. I just was, you know, I learned it in class, memorized it for a test, began to preach it. It was never proven. We've got to take time to prove what the truth is. You know, can you be a Christian and not keep the Sabbath and not follow in Christ's footsteps? We need to prove these things. When was the, the Sabbath changed? Why was it changed? Who changed it? Did they have permission to change it? See, if we nail these things down, you're not going to be deceived. But if we don't take the time to nail these things down, does the church have prerogatives to make certain decisions? Can I make decisions? And then kind of bring the church along with me. You know, what are the mechanisms that God has set up for these things? We need to examine everything that we believe and hold on to the truth. In 2 Timothy 2.15, another powerful principle for avoiding deception. 2 Timothy 2.15. The New King James and the Older King James have slightly different translations. The Old King James says, study to present yourselves approved unto God. The New King James says, be diligent. You can say, diligently study. Yeah. 
to present yourselves approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Now, if we don't diligently study, we don't diligently prove things, we will be ashamed. We'll be caught short. Rightly dividing, correctly understanding the word of truth, but shun, avoid profane and vain babblings. And some of these arguments and some of these ideas that are floating around today are literally vain and profane, silly, crazy ideas. Oh, it'll be so wonderful when I go to heaven. Yet the Bible says no one has gone to heaven except Christ that came down from heaven. Really? I mean, that's what the book says. If we know those things, we're not going to get caught up in some of these ideas that are floating around today. Some people are saying, well, you know, we, we shouldn't teach the bad news of prophecy. We ought to be focusing on the good news. Well, why did God send prophets to ancient Israel? Hosea came at the very peak of Israel's power. And he gave a message that was not necessarily appreciated. He rattled cages. You know, Ezekiel was told, you say certain things, they're not going to like it, but you say it anyways. And yet there's some today, well, we don't want to be too dogmatic because we might upset people. How can you fulfill an Ezekiel commission if you're not willing to rattle a few cages? And the only way people will believe you is if you've proven what's right and true and then you say it very powerfully. Now, if you're depending on being elected to lead your organization, you might not say things real powerfully because you don't want to upset too many people. This is one of the downsides of elective uh, systems. But we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Isaiah 8.20 says there, If they speak not according to this word, if they don't speak according to this word, there's no truth, there's no light in them. They're not being inspired, they're not being led by God. You know, Isaiah 58, 1, I think it is, says, Cry aloud, spare not, show my people their sins. And yet there's some that, well, don't, 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 don't say that too loud. You know, we were told in the Worldwide Church of God before we came out, don't use that word pagan. That will upset people. Now, we can't use it, but broadcasters can. I've got a book entitled Pagan America. And what's happening to America today? They're buying into pagan concepts. And they're doing this big time in Europe. We've got to know what the book says and be able to recognize when somebody is not speaking according to the word of God. Deception. Recognizing deceivers. Recognizing deception. This is one of the challenges that Jesus said the church at the end of the age will face. And we've got to be able to recognize these things when we see them and understand where they will lead. Challenge number two. <clears throat> Challenge number two. We are going to have to make critical decisions and critical judgments as we approach the end of the age. And one of the buzzwords today is, oh, you're judging. You're judging. You shouldn't judge. What is a person without judgment? A fool? You know, if we are unable to make wise judgments, we make foolish decisions. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. Again, this is part of the deception, so some of these points will overlap. But in Matthew chapter 7, now this is part of the Sermon on the Mount that Christ gave very early in his ministry. And we find here he's talking about some of the very same things he talked about at the end of his ministry. But in Matthew chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now the word here means to condemn. Don't condemn people. Well, you're part of that group over there, and you're a Laodicean, and you're this and you're that. We shouldn't judge people. It says, you know, you look at the, you get rid of the moat in your own eye. 
Make sure that you are on track. And then let God work with the other person. So we should not condemn people, but let's look at verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. In other words, you have to look, analyze the fruits, and make a judgment. So we are going to be responsible for making judgments, making decisions. No, I can't go over there. I can't follow that person because they're teaching this, they're teaching that. Now, we're not condemning other people for doing that. But you will have to make a judgment about where you will go, what you will do, what you will believe. Why you will not believe certain things. No, that's wrong. Well, how do you know it's wrong? That's your opinion. No, the book says this. History shows this will happen if you go down that road. There are lessons we can learn. I'm making a judgment. I'm not condemning anybody. But I'm making a judgment. You know, we will have to make judgments. Jesus is saying here, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Well, I'm a man of God. I've been part of the church of God for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, I've had a little disagreement, but God has shown me something. And he's revealed to me this concept or this idea. We've got to be careful of these things. We will have to make a judgment. You know, today there are many different groups that have come out of the church of God. We could call them branches because they did branch off from the same place. We could call them groups. We can get in a big discussion about branches. Are there? Are there not? But we need to ask a couple of more questions. Why are there different branches? Why are there different groups? One of the ideas floating around today is, oh, we're all the same. I'm in a, I'm, I'm in, I'm in a branch of the church, so I'm okay. But is that okay? Why do the branches exist? Why do the different groups exist? Again, we're not judging anybody, but we do have to make a judgment. Where will you go? Why will you go there? Why will you not go there? A number of scriptural principles relate to this. In Amos 3.3, it says, Two cannot walk together unless they are agreed. One of the reasons we are not together today one of the reasons various groups are not together is because they don't agree. Whereas Amos said, two cannot walk together unless they agree. If we were all in agreement, we would be together. We're not together because we're not in agreement over government, over prophecy, over leaders, over doctrine. Jesus also said in Matthew 12, 25, a house divided will fall. A house divided will fall. Let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It's an interesting scripture. Because I've read this in the past and said, well, you know, God's church is united. As a spiritual organism, it should be. This is the goal. This is the mission. But notice Paul's context. He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. But notice he's writing to people who were not of the same mind and of the same judgment. But he does call them brethren. He says, I'm writing to you, brethren, that you all be of the same mind. One of the reasons we exist in different groups today is we are not of the same mind. And we are not of the same judgment. And we have to ask the question, is this the church that Christ is building that is not of the same mind and not of the same judgment? We don't exist together because we're on a different track in many cases. 
And I think the longer we are separated, the more obvious these differences are going to become. We have had people that have split off and originally believed as we did and are now preaching the United States is the beast. We have major differences with that. We have others that have set up a different form of government. We have others that have preaching other forms of doctrines. And I think the longer we are apart, the more visible these differences are going to become. You can read through John chapter 15, where it talks about branches that are pruned and branches that bear wrong fruit will be pruned off. And even those that bear good fruit <laughs> will be pruned a bit. You know, with grapevines, if you don't prune them, they won't bear grapes the next year. Now, if you're the one that is being pruned, your ideas are being pruned. Don't do that. That hurts. You know, if somebody came along and said, I want to prune your fingers. Prune my fingers. You can clip my fingernails, but you can't prune my fingers. That's painful. But God says, or John, Christ is saying in John 15, I, I will prune. Some to bear fruit and some because they're bearing the wrong fruit. Again, I'm not here to make judgments this afternoon or to judge people. We're just reading the scriptures. These are the warnings that are there. And we need to talk about these things. I had breakfast with a friend a number of years ago. And I said, when, or what are your thoughts on this Philadelphia Laodicea issue? He said, I haven't thought about that in a long time. And I'm thinking, come on, <laughs> it's happening now. You need to think about it. But his, kind of, his answer was, well, I haven't thought about that. I don't want to comment until I do some more thinking about it. At what point in time do we sit down and think about it and talk about it? Again, I'm not to be up here saying, you're a layer to sin. I don't want to have anything to do with you. We don't want to make judgments like that. But we do need to talk about the issues. And not pass judgment on other people, but be aware that Christ said these things are going to happen. So why are there different groups, branches, whatever you want to call them? Because we are not of the same mind. We're not moving down the same path in many cases. And again, this is my own personal thought. I think the longer we go down the path, the more obvious the differences are going to become. Does it matter where I go? See, this is part of the argument today. doesn't matter. We're all the same. It really doesn't matter. We're all going in the same direction. We'll all be in the same place. Let's go to Revelation chapter 3 very quickly. Again, these are the scriptures. These are the warnings we have to read and think about. Let's just notice a couple of things as we get down through here. In Revelation 3, it talks about the Sardis church. And it mentions in verse 4, I have a few names even in Sardis. So there's some people there that are on track or they're, they're spiritually on the same wavelength. But it says uh, uh, in verse 3 that they, uh, where is it here? Verse 2, be watchful, strengthen things are about to remain that are about to die, for I have not found your works uh, perfect. But here you have basically a dead church that has a few members that are on the right track, which would indicate God does have some people in that organization. But you have to ask the question, is that where I want to be in this dead church? Would I invite others to come in to my dead church, even though I may be on the right track? I mean, these are judgments we have to make. In Revelation chapter 3, down in verse uh, 8, 9, and 10, it talks about, I know your works, this Philadelphia era, and those that have that spirit of the Philadelphia era set before you an open door. You have a little strength. You've kept my name. You've not denied my, or you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, continue on, 
you know, preaching the gospel, warning the world, doing the work, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. It's talking about the tribulation. Because you have done what I've asked you to do, I will keep you from, protect you from the tribulation. But if you look at what is promised and prophesied for the Laodicean era of the church, which is to be the major era at the end of the age. Verse 17 says, Because you say I'm rich, I'm wealthy, and have need of nothing. I don't need to join you. We're doing okay. We have the truth. And do not know you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, would you want to invite people? My church is wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Come join us. It's a judgment that some people will make. And I've had people come and talk to me. Well, I, I attend over there. I don't belong. I don't, I'm, I'm not a member over there because they're actually kind of Laodicean. But that's where I attend. I'm thinking, <laughs> something doesn't add up. Again, I don't want to be disrespectful, but these warnings are here. We've got to talk about them. If we don't, we're not doing our job as ministers. We've got to think about these decisions. And again, we're not passing judgment on anybody. You know, we're not condemning anybody. We're reading what is here. John goes on. He says, I counsel you to buy gold refined in the fire. Refined in the fire. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, repent. But we turn ahead quickly to Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> it talks about a group of people that's going to be persecuted, will flee into the wilderness to her place. And this appears to be the Philadelphia uh, era of the church will be protected. And then the serpent pursues uh, these people. It says, the earth helped the woman, indicating there is a place of safety. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up a flood. And the woman, or excuse me, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here's a group of people that keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus Christ, but they are not protected during the tribulation. And that appears to be the Laodicean group of people. Will it make a difference what group I'm with, what group I'm a part of? According to the scripture, it will make a difference. I was kind of kidding with one person. I said, you know, we're all going to wind up in the same place. I said, yeah, that's true. But the route to get there may be a little, little bit different. You know, one goes through the tribulation and one apparently misses it. You've got a judgment to make. Where will I want to be? Where would I want to invite other people? Again, we're not condemning. We're saying this is what we are told. One of the challenges facing the church today will be making critical decisions. And believe me, these will be critical decisions that need to be made to the best of our ability. Third point, <clears throat> third challenge. We must be able to endure trials and tribulations without becoming offended. We must be able to endure trials and tribulations without becoming offended. Matthew 24. <clears throat> Again, part of the prophecies, part of the predictions, part of the warnings of the trials and tribulations and challenges the church would face. Verse 9, it says, They will deliver you, talking about people that believe the truth. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. Many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Why will they be offended? Well, if they wouldn't have been so powerful on prophecy, I wouldn't have got dragged into jail. I wouldn't have got persecuted at work. If they wouldn't have called the Catholic Church a certain name, I wouldn't have had my neighbors upset with me. You know, if they would have focused on just preaching about love, gentle things like that, nobody would have been offended. Now, there are other ways of becoming offended. 
You you might be deceived by a false doctrine. They deceived me. They made me keep the Sabbath. They deceived me. They made me eat clean foods. And it was unnecessary. They told me I needed to give up my job, and I lost my job over the Sabbath, and I lost my job, and I'm offended. Or my responsibilities changed, and I didn't like it. I was a host, and they brought in a minister. And I wasn't the chief person anymore. These are things I've run into, you've run into. They took the song books away from me. (laughs) And they gave them to somebody else to pass out. I'm partly facetious, but you know what I'm talking about. And I'm offended. We've got to be careful. You know, if anybody, if, if you have been around the church for 20 or 30 years, 5 or 10 years even, you probably had some ups and some downs. Paul said, I know what it is like to be abased and to abound. I remember when I was teaching in Pasadena years ago, I'd been there probably as long as anybody else, and they appointed a department chairman. It wasn't me. It was somebody else who'd come there much later. And he walked by my office one day. I saw him walking by. We had, we had kind of a, an awkward arrangement. And I finally walked into his office and said, look, I don't have any hard feelings. I said, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I'm glad you got what you got. He said, well, if anybody would have had hard feelings, you should have. <laughs> but I just wanted to ease his conscience. I said, look, I don't have any hard feelings. I've had hard feelings over other things. (laughs) You know, God will give us opportunities and try us and test us to see how we roll with the punch. We had another situation where, uh, again, about the same period of time in Pasadena, where we were told, we're going to wipe out your department, we're going to keep one person. Now, there were four or five of us that taught, and we were friends. And my challenge was, you know, do I pray, I want to be that one person? Because it meant a job change, it meant moving, it meant all kinds of things. But I prayed that God's will would be done. And I tried very hard not to pray just for myself, even though my wife was pregnant and you know, we're waiting for a baby and all these kind of things. I mean, God has a chance to watch our attitude when decisions are made. If we become offended, I'm out of here, I don't like this. Uh, we'll all have opportunities that way, but we've got to be careful we don't become offended, that we stay focused on the big picture, that God is in charge. Mr. Armstrong's on God's on his throne. Well, he still is, and he is working out. Romans 8.28 says, All things work to the good. All things. Yeah, but I didn't bargain for this. I remember reading an account of a girl that joined the army. And she wound up in Kuwait. And the interview said, I never bargained for this. You know, I thought I could keep my horse on the military reservation and just go on through college. I didn't bargain for this to be over here. Well, when you join the army, you're a GI. You're a government issue. You're sent where they send you. You We've got to keep the big picture in mind. God is preparing us for big things. To reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. To change the course of history. But he's not going to give it to somebody that he doesn't know how they will react. Trials will come. Challenges will come. We've got to be careful we don't become offended. Point number four. Boy, time just disappears when you're up here. (laughs) Challenge number four. We've got to understand, recognize, and respect the authority and the government of God. The authority God puts in the church and the government of God. I know it's a long point, but it's a very simple point. We've got to understand, recognize, and respect the authority and the government God puts in, this, in his church. You know, what you read today in the newspapers, what you read on the Internet, and what I have been increasingly encountering in a church, and I would suspect many of the other ministers that are here have had the same thing. Today, nobody wants to be told anything. That's your opinion. 
You might be a minister. You might be an evangelist. You might be in a church for 40 years. Hey, buddy, that's your opinion. I can read the Bible. I can make decisions for myself. I don't need your input. These things were predicted, brethren, to come. If you turn quickly to Second <clears throat> Peter, you know, Peter writes about uh, things that will happen at the end of the age. John writes about things that will happen at the end of the age. Christ spoke about those things. Paul writes about these things. <clears throat> Second Peter, <clears throat> chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers. So he's projecting into the future among you who will secretly or subtly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who brought them. And many, again the, <laughs> the words, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth is blasphemed. And talking about these false teachers down in verse 9, it says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh uh, in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority or despise government. They are presumptuous. That's your opinion. You might be a minister, but I'm a member. Or I might be a minister too, and I don't agree with you. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 12, but these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they don't understand. We are going to flatten the pyramid of government in the church. Oh, really? Who was the author of the pyramid? A pyramid-shaped government, a hierarchical form of government? Read Exodus 18. God told Moses... You put some over a thousand or one over a thousand, one over a hundred, one over fifties. That is a pyramid. And you squash the pyramid. What you're saying is, God, we don't need your input. We're going to do it our way. And yet this has been received. Oh, we're going to flatten the pyramid. We're all equal. This is great. Again, improving all things. You might want to read the little booklet by Will and Ariel Durant entitled Lessons of History. Here is a Catholic husband and wife, historians. And they're talking about lessons of history. They talk about lessons of history in government, in economics, in education, in science. Durant quotes Plato. Plato made an observation 400 years B.C. that there appears to be a cycle of governments that run from monarchies then to aristocracies where you've got a couple of people in charge to democracies. Democracies turn into anarchy. And to salvage people from an anarchy, it takes a dictator. He points out the most stable form of government in history has been monarchies, where there have been wise monarchs in charge. And he says democracies appear to be highly unstable forms of government that eventually become anarchy and requires a dictator to move in and take over to restore order. And today we're wanting to export democracy to the world. Again, just to try and ram home, what we're talking about is not just worldwide God, world or church of God ideas. Samuel Huntington talking about what is happening in the world today. He says, much evidence exists in the 1990s for the relevance of the sheer chaos paradigm of world affairs. Things are going crazy today. 
With a global breakdown of law and order, failed states and increasing anarchy in many parts of the world, a global crime wave, all these things. He says, on a worldwide basis. Now keep in mind, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, at the end of the age, it's going to be a terrible time. At the end of the age, terrible, troublesome times will come. Huntington says, on a worldwide basis, civilization seems in many respects to be yielding to barbarianism, generating the image of an unprecedented phenomena, a global dark ages possibly descending on humanity. Here's a Harvard scholar. He's not talking nonsense. He's saying this is what's happening in the world. Paul says in 2 Timothy, the end of the age is going to become terrible. Democracies do come apart. They become anarchy. It turns into that. And then you need a strong hand from somewhere that will try and straighten this out. And if you've got a German pope, we will do it this way. <laughs> and he says, look, I'm your last hope. It's going to take a strong militant religion to bring things back to order. No, the Turks cannot come in. And he said this. He said it will change the whole complexion of Europe. Europe is a Christian club. Turks are not going to like that. The Arab world is not going to like that. But Europeans who are fearing all this immigration will say, yeah, yeah, he's on our side. So he's ecumenical. He's saying we've got to save things. And if he has another German who's the prime minister of Europe, they figure we haven't had this chance in a thousand years. This is our chance. Why is this coming together at this time? Let me just mention one more point and then I will quit. Final challenge that we face as a church is learning to work together as a team. Learning to work together as a team. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body has many parts. You know, I've taught anatomy and physiology for a number of years. Each system in the body has got to work together harmoniously for the body to survive. If the lungs decide, we're tired, we're not going to breathe today. <laughs> Everybody else dies. The heart says, I'm tired beaten. I've been doing this for years. I quit. Everybody dies and the heart dies. See, the body's got to work together. Yeah, but I don't agree with him. When I come to church, I sit over here just because they're sitting over there. These are things we've got to get over, brethren. We have got to learn to work together in harmony. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul talks about the unity of the faith. Again, the reason we're in different groups today is we are not unified. But there does appear to be a group of people that are on the same wavelength. Now, they not, may not all be in the same organization yet today. But I think God will bring together those that are on the same wavelength. Because the church is a spiritual organism. Our challenge is to learn to work together as a team. A couple of points quickly on teamwork, but this could be another sermon for someone. Each team member has got to share the same sense of mission. 1 Corinthians 1.10, to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. And it has been interesting in the Council of Elders. We may not all see everything exactly the same, but when we talk things out, well, yeah, I agree with that. We may come at it slightly differently, but fundamentally we're on the same page. And we've all got to do that. Not that we check our brains at the door. I don't have my own opinions. Well, we all have our own opinions. But if we're prayerfully approaching God and say, God, give me your perspective, we will be on the same wavelength. We've got to have the same sense of mission of preaching the gospel and some of these ideas. Well, why are we preaching so much prophecy? Brethren, we live at the end of an age. We are seeing the decline and decay of our peoples. God sent prophets to ancient Israel. 
And he sent prophets to Judah to warn them out of love. And if we don't do that, we're not doing our job. And decided, well, we shouldn't talk so much about prophecy. I was talking with my landlord just before I came over here. He's been working in a school. He said a woman showed up with uh, two little boys, one seven years old and one ten years old. She was trying to get the ten-year-old under control, and a little seven-year-old rolls a cigarette, lights it up. The next day, she brought both boys back, and she just kind of, I've called the police on my sons. I can't control them. And his comment was, where is our nation going? He says, we're being destroyed as a nation. Then he looked at me and said, you're a man of the cloth. You should know where things are going. Tell me what's happened. (laughs) I think when I go back, I'll say, do you really want to know? (laughs) We have a message, brethren, we have to deliver. And it does involve Bible prophecy. Final point in working together is that team members need to be able to subordinate their personal agendas and personal opinions for the good of the team. They need to be able to subordinate their personal agenda. Well, I don't think it ought to be done this way. Well, if that's what you think, talk with somebody who's making decisions. Here's what I think. This, this is something I feel strongly about. And then talk about it as opposed to you know, going around to different people. You know, I don't agree with this decision. And then we start creating dissension. Team members learn to work together. You know, we're small right now, but God can learn a lot of lessons with small groups. We can't hide. You know, in large groups, we can hide. In small groups, we can't. God is molding and fashioning and preparing a team that when Jesus Christ returns to this earth... He's going to have a team ready to go. Do you want to be on that team? Or do you have your own agenda? Jesus Christ told us to watch world events. He says, watch for this configuration of wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and so on. But Jesus also talked about challenges that the church would face as we approach the end of the age. Christ did this because he loves us. You can go back and read the scriptures that we go through on the Passover, John, latter part of John 15, the early part of John 16. And Jesus said, look, I'm telling you these things ahead of time so you don't stumble. You know, I love you. I've called you to be on the team. I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to fall off the team. That's why I'm telling you these things ahead of time. You might want to go home and just sit down and meditate a little bit on what we talked about this afternoon. Challenges that the church will face. Challenges that you and I will face as we approach the end of the age. And our personal little drama will be taking place on the stage where all these other things are taking place. It's an incredible drama. It's an incredible mystery of the ages that's being worked out. God has called us to become part of his team. He's molding and fashioning us to be part of his family. And we can be there if we're aware of and prepare for and strive to make it through the challenges facing the church at the end of the age.